stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. Hey, I'm Danny Stewart and you're listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. This week we're featuring an interview from 177 nations of Tasmania, a project by Mark Thompson which aims to produce conversations with someone from each of the 177 nationalities represented in the last census of Tasmania. In this episode, Mark speaks to Adele Youssef, a Palestinian Iraqi scholar and lecturer at the University of Tasmania. Adele speaks about the destruction of his father's village by Israeli forces in Palestine, the importance of anti-colonial solidarity, the right to resist, and hope for the future. I was born in Baghdad to a father that's Palestinian uh, from Haifa and a mother that's Iraqi born in Baghdad. In 1948, Israeli armed militia fighting units attacked the village. They were farmers. They, they picked olives and grew wheat and vegetables and they killed uh, many of them, uh, destroyed the village and my father's family ended up refugees. They were turned from people who were self-sustaining into people who needed food, shelter, and assistance. The village was destroyed. They dynamited it. It's terra It's um, a land with no people for a people with no land. Uh, your listeners can relate to that because of Australia. So colonization of Australia, the colonizers basically said there are no people. So when, when the settlers came to the Palestine, when they colonized the Palestine, to, to make it as though there were no people, they would attack villages in small towns, massacre. And so they attacked uh, the village of An Ghazal, where my father was born near Haifa, and then they dynamited it. And when they dynamited, they planted pine plantations, so you can't find the village anymore. And when I went to the Palestine, I won a Rotary scholarship and went to the Palestine to teach at the university there. It took me a couple of goes to find the village because it's, again, it's terra nullis. Uh, the village never existed, according to the uh, Israelis. When they left Haifa, they walked out with the shirts on their back and it was winter. It was really cold. Many people died on the route. So they ended up in squalid conditions in Jenin, which is a, a town in the West Bank. And at that time, the Iraqi Viceroy was visiting Jenin and he invited 300 families to Iraq. My grandfather put his hand up and that's how my father at 10 years old ended up in Baghdad. When my my father was at marrying age, they don't give spouses to refugees because they have no passports, they have no nationality. But 
my mother fell in love with my father at university. It was a love story. Right. And so her father, my, my grandfather on my mother's side said, no, you cannot marry a refugee. It's impossible. But she persisted. And she married my father in spite of my grandfather. And she was an avant-garde for her time mm. in relation to women. She drove a car when very few women could read and write. Yeah. She was she was one of that group of and there was a few of them in Iraq at the time that were highly mobile, highly literate and very active in the social and political life. And that's how I had a privileged life because I grew up outside of the refugee camp because he married an Iraqi woman. The ground under his feet didn't shake so much. He had a sturdy pillar to hang on to, which is my mother. So we had um, access to good food, good accommodation, and good education. Other descendants of refugees to this day didn't have access to that. To this day, they are struggling to this day without nationality or passport. So yes, we were highly educated, uh, and my father encouraged us to read. Colonialism is shell-shocking. It, 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 it's gut-wrenching. And, and most of my father's kin are shell-shocked. Whereas my father applied for and received a scholarship to do a master's and a PhD at Birmingham University in the UK. Mm -hmm. And that's how we ended up in the, United, in the United Kingdom. And this is where this English is from. And that's how I ended up reading Agatha Christie. That's how come I listened to the Ramones and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple. And how was your experience of, I mean, at that age of England? Not good, not mm -hmm. good. It was the 70s, um, the National Front. We were the only two colored kids in the school. I got beaten up about once a week. It was uh, not a pleasant time. And my father, seeing my father um, being mistreated, I was cogent enough to, to know when my father's being abused. For no good reason. I can tell you about going home from school and, and trying to get home as quickly as possible so I don't get um, accosted en route. But, but also, let's not forget, I learned about Dickens. A teacher gave me a poetry book at the time. Uh, let's not forget about the literature. Let's not forget about me learning about Christianity and Judaism, which combined with Islam, and, and, and it, it, it really broadened my mind. Yes, there were terrible times, but I also learned a lot, and it held me in good stead. So what do you think was the biggest, uh, I don't know, lesson that you got from that, that time of your life? Stand up for yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't lie down and play dead. That's what I did. I would just curl up into fetal position and get beaten up. That's not the way to go. Stand up, speak up, say back off. And and the right to resist. You have to, I mean, if you're being dehumanized, do not accept abuse. I also wanted to find my father's village, very mm -hmm. important. And I, I, when I found it, I felt complete. I really felt whole. So how did you go about finding it? Like, What information did you have? I had no information whatsoever. However, I knew the village was near Haifa. I was detained for seven-hour interrogation at the Allenby Bridge between Jordan and the West Bank of the Palestine. 
and people think there's a Palestinian authority, but actually Israel controls everything. As you cross the bridge, the Israelis detain you. So the Palestinians live in cantons, live in mm. townships controlled by the Israelis. So right of return, it's not possible. They thought I was going back, but I told them I'm just here to donate my time. I've got a Rotary Peace Scholarship and I'm here just to lecture at the university, unpaid. No, no, you've come here to, to work. Well, they're not paying me a salary. And of course, they, they have good contacts with Australia. While they detained me for seven hours, they would have been contacting the authorities here Mm -hmm. and checking me out, I'm sure. And then they released me after seven hours in the middle of the night, and I had to find my own way into the West Bank. So I passed the checkpoints, got into Jerusalem. Uh, I took a bus to Haifa. Of course, there was an incident on the bus. The Israeli, uh, the young Israelis, guns everywhere. Can you imagine young people, 18, 19, carrying, even young women, and they're very, they can be very aggressive very aggressive. One girl accosted me. She wanted to look into my backpack on the bus, but she was very abusive. And she had the point of her M16 sitting on my, on the shin of my foot. And I'm saying to her, you're hurting me. Could you please lift your weapon off my shoe? She just ignored me. Mm. It's just intimate because I'm, I'm Arab. They just ignore you. Anyway, I, I took the bus to Haifa. Once I got to the bus station, I found an Arab. And I said, where's the Arab quarter? So the Arabs live in a, a place called Khalisa, mm -hmm. which basically looks like Amman. But when you look at the, across the street, you see the settler houses, the Westerners. And they basically look like houses in Australia. So I got into Khalisa. As soon as I stepped off the bus, I saw a small shop and I walked into the shop and I spoke in Arabic to this guy who spoke Arabic. They, they were very concerned, you know, they're very uh, suspicious. They're, they're scared I could be a stooge or something. Mm. I just explained who I am and I said, I'm looking for Ain Ghazal, my father's village. And they said, yeah, we can help you. My father did have a longing to go back and he forbade us to get other nationalities because the notion was to go back to Palestine. But for the way his generation were thinking about it through armed struggle, through liberation, we knew it was not going to happen because Israel is backed by the West. The West funds and arms Israel, whereas we are our armies, there's no comparison. And my father, to this dying day, never gave up on that notion that we would go home, right of return, is mm -hmm. very important for, for Palestinian refugees. Of course, the settlers, the state of Israel, cannot accept that because it would dilute the ethnicity or the religious... Well, it, it's enshrined the law. Uh, Israel is a Jewish state. It's a racist state. If, if, you, if you're not Jewish, you're not allowed to go to, to live in, in Palestine. Got back to Iraq. My Arabic was in a poor state. And I didn't do well in my bachelorate degree. I ended up in agriculture school, which I hated with a passion. Oh my Lord, I could not wait to finish. I did not. And it also was a time of war in the Iraq, Iran. So we, we had no trips, no parties. Uh, it was it was not, not a, a really exciting time to be a young person because of the war effort and people getting killed and Scud missiles and... and people dying yeah so it wasn't a really pleasant time i was always different i read 
Agatha Christie. I read, as I said, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I watched Western movies. I listened to Western music, whereas everyone around me was from rural areas. Yes, by that time, I'd learned Arabic fluent enough to converse. But my mental mentality and way of thinking was totally different. And as such, you don't end up with friends. So four years of university without friends uh, was, was rather difficult, as you, as you may uh, appreciate. I went into the Baghdad Research Council and undertook research in agronomy. And so in 92, Portal opened, and with my laissez-passe, I crossed into Jordan, where I stayed for eight months, most of it illegally, just went underground, as, as they say, so avoiding the police, avoiding the authorities, but accessing the Australian embassy. And okay. I applied for a skilled migrant visa uh, using my bachelor's degree. And of course, with this English and um, two years of experience in research, I got a visa to Australia. And that's how I ended up. Uh, I arrived in, on the 19th of May, 1993 in Sydney. And I had no money. I had $200 in my pocket. I didn't know which way was up. Imagine coming out of a war zone. You haven't seen the supermarket. And suddenly trying to understand how Woolworths and Coles works and how the mm. trains work and how the buses work. And also my English was so good. I, I got into potholes because my mentality was Arabic and my mouth, I spoke well. So when I opened my mouth, Arabic idioms and, and things came out. And I often got in trouble for that because I would express myself in ways that weren't deemed totally suited to this society and environment mm -hmm. because of my Arabic uh, experience. And, and, and you learn to adjust to the nuances, to, to look out for the facial features. For example, I find people, when they're stressed, they smile. And I often think, we're talking about something seriously. Why are you laughing? Why are you, why are you giggling and smiling? Well, I, I say that to my wife as well. I, I don't get that. I don't understand. You should, you should have a solemn face right now. <laughs> but that's, that's the Australian way. That's the Western way. And, and you learn these small things, and you need to adapt as well talking about colonialism, apartheid. By and large, people feel very uncomfortable. There are notable exceptions, and you have to choose your audiences yeah. carefully. Uh, I didn't know that initially. I come from a culture, how are you? Oh, my auntie died last week, and my second cousin's got cancer, and my third cousin got taken away by the security police, and oh, woe betide us. Whereas here you say, I'm good. I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for asking. How are you? And I knew early on that I needed, my degrees were worthless here. So I needed degrees from Australia. So I got into a master's degree straight away at the University of New South Wales. And I achieved that and I actually published a scientific article from that master's. And then I got odd jobs here and there just to keep body and soul together. I mean, I was down and out. There were days I had $10 to my name. Absolutely. Uh, not much sleep, studying and working. But all of that helped me get on my feet again. And one thing led to another. So a two-week contract became a three-month contract, three-month contract, three-year contract, then on to a permanent position and so on. And that's how I got to where I am today. So when I, I uh, did my master's degree, I got some work in the industry to get some industrial experience. 
And after that, I thought I'd better get on and do my PhD. So I applied for a scholarship to do a, a doctorate in post-harvest grain processing. So grain is my game. That's, mm-hmm. that's, I think grain is very sexy and, and that's, that's what I enjoy. So wheat, barley, a sorghum. And um, I could bore you <laughs> with the uh, rheology of making dough out of uh, wheat flour for uh, pan bread or flatbread or chipatis, but I won't. So not only did I get a PhD, um, I met Charlotte, uh, my wife, and um, I wouldn't be where I am today without her. So she's a wonderful woman, and um, I, I am I'm I'm very indebted to her. And I'm not saying that because I've got a microphone stuck uh, under my nose. So how did you how did you meet? Well, she was a colleague in Gatton College in in Queensland, country Queensland. Uh, we were friends for ten years. We were very close friends. Uh, we were well, like brother and sister, really, for a long, long, long time. And uh, she opened up her home to me. Uh, there was always a cup of tea and a meal uh, at a time when I was very lonely. Finding people to talk about the things that I'm interested in talking about were few and far between. And um, I always found uh, Charlotte very welcoming. There was always a cup of tea and a meal at her house. And we were exceptional friends, very close, nothing untoward just close buddies and uh, people were thinking we were having an affair but there was nothing nothing like that at all yeah and that continued for about 10 years until finally the penny dropped and uh, things got a bit more intricate after that to put it delicately and uh, I finally uh, proposed marriage I was very um, smart I did some things Excuse me, uh, I think spectacular. Uh, excuse if even if I say so myself. I had um, a meeting with the Iraqi cultural attaché in Canberra. I was trying to attract the Ministry of Higher Education money to a uh, an Australian university that's postgraduate students. So we had I had a meeting, and so Charlotte and I, and we went to Canberra together. And uh, I, I said to her, I've got to show you the parliament. So I'd been to the parliament before and I'd like to... Uh, we went into the uh, parliament and, and so Charlotte was very impressed um, with that. And then I showed her around the different parts of the parliament, especially the Magna Carta. She's, she's very interested in, in English um, history. And I don't know how I kept her busy, but I went down to the florist. This is the parliamentary, this is the florist for the prime minister and the ministers and all the all the federal government. And I said to her, look, I need a bouquet of flowers and, and a vase and something nice. And I remember she charged me $160 for, for, the, um, for the flowers. There was 12 red roses uh, for $160 in a red vase. And I said to her, I'd like them delivered to the roof of the parliament. Of course, today, for security reasons, you cannot go on the roof. There was a Mm. grass lawn on top of the roof of the parliament. And there was a viewing panel. And I remember the florist says, go, go. Uh, Because I was having trouble paying. She said, no, go. And I said, you don't know me from a bar of soap. I (laughs) I I can take your flowers and disappear. And I insisted on paying, so I did manage to pay in the end. Anyway, I had Charlotte on the roof of the parliament, otherwise engaged, and suddenly the the, the florist turns up with a bouquet of flowers, 
and I say to her, will you marry me? So that's, that's how I propose to Charlotte. By and large, people are against apartheid. I don't believe they fully comprehend that apartheid is practiced in Israel. Uh, so by and large, people tell you there is a, a war or a fight going on in Israel, but they don't understand the disproportionality mm -hmm. of the forces involved, that Israel is Western-backed, that it is a colonial state, that there is a worldwide effort, the boycott, divestment, and sanction against Israel to shut apartheid down, to shut racism down to stop this colony of mistreating the indigenous people. I don't think, by and large, uh, the Australian public is aware of this. However, the Australian public were very, very active back in the 70s and mm -hmm. 80s in the anti-apartheid movement. And I can say categorically that without the general public in Australia, the, Uni the United Kingdom, the USA, Canada, New Zealand, specifically New Zealand, if they had not marched and boycotted, Nelson Mandela and the African National Council would still be designated as terrorists. So we undertake non-political, non-religious advocacy work uh, in support of the Palestinian people. And, and this work should be done in, for any group uh, that has been maligned, mistreated, downtrodden, in this case, we're talking about Palestinians, and so we are trying to educate the general public about Israeli apartheid, about racism, colonization, how the indigenous people of the land are colonized, maligned, mistreated, and, and, and tagged, in this case, Palestinians as terrorists and troublemakers. I just want your, your listeners to know, the settler has... Many of them are dual citizenship. Some of them have three, four passports. They can go anywhere in the world mm. they want to. Whereas the indigenous people, they are in open prisons, living in, in areas surrounded by Israeli settlements. They've got nowhere to go. And their access to land, water, electricity, education, freedom of movement is greatly curtailed by the settler state. And this, in this day and age, is unacceptable. We cannot accept that. We cannot accept mistreatment of any minority uh, on religious grounds, on ethnic grounds, on gender grounds, on sexuality grounds. We cannot accept that today. And so we have to call out Israel. The hope is apartheid and racism will go away. Once that will happen, people will have the right to return to their homes. There will be free access to movement, education, resources, electricity, water, land. The guns will go away. And you think this might be a pipe dream, but it's not, because I'm about to give you an example. The example is the Crusades. Now, the Crusades is exactly like colonial Israel today. Armies came from Europe. They attacked, they raped, they pillaged, they murdered. However, when the armies went home, the Franks, the Anglos, the Saxons settled in places like Ramallah, Bethlehem, uh, around Jerusalem. And now you find blonde, blue-eyed people. They look you're totally European, but they're Palestinian, so they were accepted and absorbed into the society. Now, my contention is, much like present South Africa, 
those Westerners that must have apartheid cannot live without apartheid can go back to Europe. And those Westerners that accept freedom of movement, right of return, equal access to education, health, can stay. And I'm sure the country can absorb everybody. There is enough room for everyone, but without racism, without apartheid, without murder and killing. I need your listeners to know that on average, two Palestinians get killed a week, day in, day out. Land gets appropriated, homes get demolished, people get mistreated. While I was there, a student was killed by the Israelis. Mm. It's not acceptable, it's not right. Justice, people need to be treated with dignity and respect. That was Palestinian-Iraqi academic Adele Youssef speaking to Mark Thompson about persecution, resistance and the ongoing violence in Palestine. As we're recording, protests are being organised to stand in solidarity with Palestine in response to recent attacks in Janine. If you're interested in finding out more, search for solidarity groups in your local area. We'll also link to some organisations and action groups in the show notes. This was an excerpt from the podcast 177 Nations of Tasmania, produced by Mark Thompson, with additional editing from Mel Chun. You can find 177 Nations of Tasmania wherever you get your podcasts. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and ACCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Timothy Nguyen. Lydia Yosefrova is our community coordinator. And Madura Prakash is our trainee. Shining Bird composed our theme music. And Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And we're made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.